and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Andrew Saunders, Head of Natural Climate Solutions at QIC, and I'm pleased to bring you the second episode of our Carbon, Cattle and Climate QPod series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Adrian Ward, CEO of Accounting for Nature, to discuss the fantastic work his organisation is doing in the natural capital space and how he sees it developing over the coming years. Adrian is a leader in Australia's natural capital industry and has more than 15 years experience in managing and advising businesses on environmental markets and natural capital. In his role at Accounting for Nature, he leads the team responsible for the development of a trusted certification standard in the emerging field of natural capital accounting. Thanks for joining me today, Adrian. Nice to see you again. Likewise. Adrian, I thought it might be, you know, given that our listeners probably aren't that familiar with Accounting for Nature um, as an organisation, I thought a good place to start would be for you to provide an overview of Accounting for Nature, who you are, what you do. I also think it'd be really important to touch on the heritage of AFN, as I think it's a really key part of the organisation. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. So, so Accounting for Nature at least the concept of Accounting for Nature was born about 15 or so years ago by a group of um, preeminent scientists called the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists, um, many working in the water space and who were concerned about the health of the Murray-Darling Basin and the ecosystems and environmental assets that were contained within. You know, very impressive, I guess, uh, group, uh, including the likes of Peter Cozier, who was the chair, um, Ken Henry, who was an advisor, of course, chair of NAB and also former Treasury Secretary, uh, and others such as Peter Harper, who was the um, Deputy Statistician for Australian Bureau of Statistics, uh, and many, many more um, got together and thought, well, you know, government is putting a lot of money towards environmental restoration, but we're actually not accounting for actual outcomes. So what I mean by that is we're not actually measuring whether as a result of a huge public policy efforts and attached money where the environment was actually uh, improving or, in fact, still going uh, down or degrading. Um, And I talk about, you know, the soils and rivers and marine assets and native vegetation forests and, uh, of course, our beloved wildlife that we have here in Australia. So the idea was born is that we need to actually quantify the measurement of nature, uh, and I use the term the state of nature because that's what the new task force for um, uh, nature-related financial disclosure is using, which we can talk about during this podcast, I'm sure. There's no other framework like it in the world. And um, basically what our organisation does is we set methods for measuring the state of nature, again, whether it's soils or forests or whatever it might be, because we recognise that in not only this carbon but nature-constrained world, uh, there are corporates, investors, governments and other actors who want to actually make a claim in the market around protecting or restoring biodiversity. Yeah. And you need a way to measure that. And so that's where Accounting for Nature sort of fits in as a standard setter and certification body around certifying scientific evidence to support claims that you make in the market and making sure that as far as we can, greenwashing claims are not being made. Thank you for that overview of AFN. You touched on something I think that's really important there and can help, I think, our listeners simplify how we are looking at nature and biodiversity loss. And you made that comment around the environment and economy 
been balanced. And I think we're at that stage now where it's quite clear that that balance is no longer there. And there is this overall recognition that we're significantly out of balance when you look at studies like the planetary boundary studies and the like. And at the same time, there's this recognition of the important role that nature plays in the global economy, both from a from an economic standpoint, but a livelihood standpoint, spiritual sp- standpoint as well in terms of traditional custodians. Do you think in terms of frameworks like the Accounting for Nature framework and clearly articulated methods being developed around nature, that will help us provide balance back to the system? Yeah, I mean, certainly that is the ambition. I mean, the core principle is is that you can't manage, you can't invest in stuff that you haven't measured. Like, yeah. we, we're not going to, you know, raise investment capital if we haven't measured the, you know, profit and loss of a company. And likewise, we can't raise money and fix the environment if we don't know what condition it's in, you know, whether it's healthy or not healthy or whether, importantly, the trend is going towards healthy or the trend is going towards unhealthy. Yeah. And I think that's why you need consolidated, you need um, standardised methods to measure this stuff so we can compare the restoration efforts here that we're having in Australia or anywhere around the world in the same way. And, you know, in doing so, in measuring, you can manage and you can invest in, and whether that's through biodiversity or nature credits or carbon credits. It's not just a conversation around balancing nature and the economy. It's nature, economy and climate. They go all together. And a part of that is also, of course, uh, dealing with First Nations people and traditional owners um, and a whole host of other things that we can, and major challenges that we've got. Uh, We can address, you know, inequalities in both social and environmental aspects at the same time. So it's unprecedented opportunity, but you do need to measure things um, yeah. to actually be able to manage them. Yeah. And you also, you know, in your opening remarks there touched on greenwashing. And I know for an investment manager such as QIC, that's top of the list for us in terms of thinking about how we make claims more broadly around what we're doing in the ESG or sustainability space, but also in the natural capital space. Do you think that increasing focus on greenwashing will drive greater uptake of certification schemes like accounting for nature? I mean, there's there's no denying that we need greater level of integrity, particularly in carbon markets at the moment. I think, you know, carbon markets have somewhat been smashed reputationally. And Mm -hmm. um, because... Uh, many would argue that they're not delivering outcomes on the ground, you know, and then when those outcomes are effectively being sold to corporates and others, the corporates are actually not getting what they're thinking they're buying. And, you know, we've had numerous reports on that on Four Corners and, you know, other media exposés through The Guardian and and whatnot that carbon markets are are not delivering. Now, there is obviously a a difference of opinion in some respects, um, but, you know, what one thing you can't do is you can't dispute the science and you can't dispute data. Um, and that's certainly, I think, the need for integrity, the need for defensibility against greenwash is becoming increasingly important. And that's why standards such as 
body count exponential does that's so important because it gives you a you know standardized way to measure and then certify with third-party audit to make sure that it's as robust as possible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I also think, you know, one of the natural advantages that Accounting for Nature has is its heritage in terms of the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. So its very foundation is based on high integrity scientific methods. Um, so I think it's, a, you know, it's a great spot to be. Obviously, Accounting for Nature is Australian focused at the moment, but starting to get a lot of recognition internationally um, from a range of different stakeholders. What are the plans for AFN over the next few years in terms of both its focus domestically within Australia, but then also looking overseas? Yeah, great question. So um, in Australia, we are We've spent a few years testing our business model and certification uh, system, and we're ironing out a few bugs, as you could say, and we're we're ever trying to make it as smooth as possible, customer experience, and as really importantly, as cost effective as possible. And even in Australia, we're seeing some really interesting methods um, coming up for accreditation that include amazing technologies such as eDNA and acoustics and machine learning and AI and all that sort of stuff. And that ultimately drives down the cost and allows you to scale. Equally, um, we've started our journey recently internationally and we're accrediting our first methods over there at the moment, actually in the UK. Um, and um, we've managed to trademark accounting for nature and econ and whatnot overseas as well in a number of jurisdictions. So things are heating up and we're basically going through a capital philanthropic raising phase at the moment to uh, get our resources together so we can actually go really hard because there's a huge amount of interest internationally for us at the moment um, and we're very keen to capitalise on that, particularly given the release of the TNFD um, and that it had featured Accounting for Nature as a headline uh, metric and system as part of its LEAP recommendations, which we were very chuffed about. Yeah, no, that's fantastic to hear. I think it might be worthwhile just touching on the TNFD and maybe giving, a, a, again, a bit of an overview of what the TNFD is and what it's hoping to achieve, um, just for our listeners that might not be familiar with the disclosure framework. So the Task Force for Nature-Based Financial uh, Disclosure, or TNFD, is the sister initiative for the Task Force for Climate uh, related financial disclosure, which came out a number of years ago. Um, well, the TNFD is focused on uh, broadly nature, risk and impact disclosure. Um, so basically what it does, it's a framework for companies to use something called the LEAP approach to go and locate, evaluate, assess and basically repeat the process and, um, uh, and look at where within their direct operations or indeed their supply chains uh, where the risk of their operations is having on on nature. So, for example, a bottling plant next to a river might be spewing out pollution or whatever. And then what the TNFD does is, is okay, identify your risks um, and then try to try to quantify the magnitude or the materiality of those risks and also set targets for reducing those risks through uh, science-based targets for nature, which is a complementary framework to accounting for nature, in that it allows you to you know, set targets around reducing fertilizer use, for example, if you're on a farm, simplistically, if you're in the Great Barrier Reef. So you might want to, for example, cut your fertilizer load by 50%, and that obviously reduces the risk 
Now, Accounting for Nature sits on the other end of the LEAP process where organisations who go through and they identify their nature risks and then they go, well, we've actually improved things, so let's measure the outcome and then make a claim to the market. And yep. there is a lot, you know, there's a huge amount of interest in measuring uplift in environmental health or condition uh, to make a claim or to create a nature-based standalone credit in the market that can be sold for a certain amount of money. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting development. And I guess from our perspective, because the TNFD was essentially built off the back of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures in terms of the structure of the framework. So, you know, disclosure around risk management, strategy, governance, metrics and targets. We actually see the TNFD uptake happening a lot faster than the TCFD. And, and in terms of the maturity of the reporting as well, you know, the TCFD came out, kind of had that five-year maturity curve. We see with the TNFD, that maturity curve will probably, it, it still might be around that five-year mark, but the expectation from a range of different stakeholders will be that organisations and investors or investment managers such as ourselves will really accelerate a lot quicker in terms of understanding how they disclose around nature. And also, I think the other thing that we're expecting to see is there's been so much legislation and regulation that's come off the back of TCFD in terms of requirements to disclose around climate-related financial risks and opportunities that regulators and legislators will be comfortable with the TNFD framework. So we would expect that disclosures around um, nature-related risks and opportunities will likely be regulated um, in the next kind of three to five years. From a climate perspective, we're going to see that happen next year from July 1 in Australia. It's already happened in New Zealand and over in the UK. So I think the the theme and focus on, on nature is um, going to be a lot quicker than it was from from a climate perspective. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. Would you agree with that broadly? I, uh, look, I would definitely broadly agree with you on that, Andrew. I think it is interesting, the speed at which the TNFD and nature has come has probably caught a lot, lot of people off guard. But, um, yeah. you know, we've obviously got some pretty solid precedents. A lot of people say the playbook on carbon, which we apply to nature. Now, that is that is true. So a lot of the things that we have done with carbon and climate change and environmental markets can be applied to nature. Although I yeah. would say that measuring nature in particular and categorising nature, you know, is actually incredibly complex and dynamic and there is a a strong case to be made that we probably need to slow things down a little bit or find balance in the fact that yes we do need to help nature we need to give it a leg up to actually you know rejuvenate and restore itself wherever we can but at the same time we need to get the standards and the science and all that sort of stuff market market enabling sort of infrastructure in place so that we you know, we are producing outcomes that are transparent and verified and that reflect, you know, actual outcomes on the ground. And just for our listeners there, I guess, you know, that complexity around biodiversity just at a very high level kind of stems from, you know, on the climate side of things, you have this single unit of measurement, the tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent that's kind of globally accepted, at least from a carbon accounting standpoint, whereas, biodiversity and nature, there is no single unit of measurement and actually biodiversity values 
a kilometre apart or five kilometres apart can be significantly different and have a whole, you know, kind of different set of traits. And so, you know, when Adrian talks to that complexity around trying to figure out what is a good way to measure biodiversity, that is something globally that a whole range of groups are grappling with. And I'm sure Adrian AFN is kind of participating in that maybe in, in some way in terms of trying to help inform those discussions? Absolutely. We remain very tightly engaged with the, the TNFD secretariat, for example, who are yeah, you know, okay. le- leading a lot of the recommendations around measuring the state of nature, as they have done in their recent uh, recommendations. Broadly speaking, we can measure whatever we want to measure. It's a question around um, the cost of measurement in in many respects, but also even before that, you need to be very clear on what you want to measure. You know, what is material to your organisation? In many cases, you can't and you shouldn't measure everything. You've got to be aware of the limitations of what you're not measuring, potentially sort of the system sort of complexities of what you're not measuring. But you need to go through a process of thinking you know, hey, what's our nature risk? What's our nature opportunity for our organisation? Uh, what's really material to our, you know, reputation, to, you know, ecological systems? Uh, is stuff threatened or not threatened? You yeah. know, what should we prioritise for measurement and, and why is, is yeah. the question that you should always ask. Yeah, and I think the other one I'd add to that is what impact is our capital allocation having? in terms of really get digging into your portfolio and understanding, you know, and it might not be a direct impact, but it might be a value chain impact that's might be really difficult to identify. But I think, and I'd be interested on your thoughts on this, but I think, you know, the first step really is digging into your portfolio and going through the leak process, but really understanding, well, hey, what impacts do I currently have? And then kind of moving on to, okay, now I understand the impact or my risk exposures. What are the tools or decisions that I can make to reduce those impacts or, or avoid them, ideally? But if, can't, if you can't avoid them, well, what other decisions or actions can I take to minimise those impacts? Yeah, 100%, 100% agree. Generally, what you do is you start with a screening assessment. So you map out what your nature risks are. You know, it could be a heat map, for example, where you've got all your facilities dotted across the globe and you go, well, that's that's more of a risk than this one. So then let's dive down and measure. You shouldn't measure straight away for measurement's yep. sake. And in fact, many of the, the organisations we work with, you know, they manage very large real asset portfolios in agriculture and forestry or fisheries. And they go, well, we've got vast amounts of land, you know, we could measure wetlands or we can measure, you know, rivers or we can measure native uh, vegetation or we can measure populations of koalas or soil. You don't necessarily need to measure stuff or at least not straight away. You should really get a short list of selected options or sites that you and environmental assets, as we call them, to actually measure once you've done your screening assessment and once you've worked out what's material. And the back of your mind, there's also... You know, it's not only about wanting to do that from a risk perspective, but we might also in the future have to do this because of fiduciary duty to do that, where directors actually have to disclose what their risks are as well, just like has sort of come out for climate. We might be doing the same for nature. And then in the future, it might be, 
more on the opportunity side, we want to measure because we want to be able to prove the uplift in environmental condition and make a claim to the market around nature positive beef, for instance, or nature positive salmon or whatever. Who knows? Yep. And yep. if you've got the rigorous science that's all sort of audited and certified behind it, then you're going to reduce your risk of greenwashing. Couldn't agree more. I think the heat map's a really good idea in terms of prioritisation because I guess everyone struggles with resourcing. So understanding where your material risks are and starting with those and then, you know, obviously taking your time to work through the whole portfolio over time. But the, the yeah, I like the idea of a heat map kind of being a, a good place to start. You use the term environmental asset then. Do you think there'll be a time where at a property level you'll have an area of high biodiversity value that's been managed, protected and managed in a way to either maintain its environmental condition at a, at a really high level or improved over time? And do you, do you feel like that will be treated as an asset within the overall, let's say, agricultural asset? I think there's a good chance it will. I mean, I think we treat carbon in many cases now as an asset. You know, a lot of value is still getting their heads around how this all works. But absolutely, I can see a future five, ten years time where we do treat biodiversity as its own asset class. And in fact, there are a lot of work going into this, into trying to bring yeah. that to bear and make it a reality. I still think we're a fair way off. But, you know, the likes of Credit Suisse and and others have been working on this for a long time to make it make it so. I mean, the the key thing is how, how do you value these assets? Very difficult to put a monetary value on biodiversity without a biodiversity or nature credit market or some kind of premium that you can charge on top of nature positive beef, for example, um, yep. or just keeping open access to market. But there will come a time where we need to segment that and probably put a value on it as part of our overarching valuation of our property. So in terms of that environmental market space, I think, again, one of the key issues that's been highlighted and acknowledged broadly is that the reason we need these environmental markets to develop is to attract private capital into the environmental markets to help facilitate the restoration of nature and biodiversity. Why do we need private capital? Because it's widely acknowledged now that public funding alone isn't going to help us solve the crisis. Do you see the development of these markets as integral to halting the crisis that we are seeing and repairing and restoring nature over time? I mean, we would all hope that government would pay for this, but that's neither realistic nor smart, I think. I think the public good um, and public money to support it is very limited. I think, yep. in particularly these days, I mean, governments have very, you know, they've got a lot of debt and um, there's a lot of priorities. There's roads, you know, there's hospitals, and then there's the environment. Now, there's no doubt in the environment's really important, particularly like countries such as Australia, who has, you know, Brand Australia is all about health and living and, you know, selling organic or pasture-grown beef and all that sort of stuff. That's what people kind of envisage in koalas and gum trees watching it all yep. happen. But the thing is public money is limited and there is a lot of, you know, private finance out there and it should be utilised, particularly by the users of land and those who are impacting 
condition of environmental assets. We need to find a way not necessarily to penalise them. A much better way would be to incentivise them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, right, in terms of a couple of things, the market access piece. I think that's going to continue to come down the line in terms of, well, if you want access to our markets, Australia, you're going to have to demonstrate some sort of improvement around how you're managing nature, reversing biodiversity loss, those sorts of things. But then also, what is the potential benefit um, from demonstrating that you are producing a product that takes nature into consideration and how you produce that product and actually looks to restore nature alongside whatever commodity it might be that you are producing. One question I did have was around, you know, obviously you've seen quite a bit internationally what's happening in this space and in particular around the markets. Is there anything that you've seen that kind of raises a red flag and you've kind of said, oh, I hope Australia doesn't go go down this avenue? Look, there's momentum happening internationally. And, um, you know, some of the events I've been lucky enough to attend, such as the World Economic Forum in Davos, you know, there, there seems to be a huge appetite for nature or biodiversity credits that are separate to carbon markets. And, and I think that's great because in many places around the world, including Australia, particularly WA and whatnot, there are places that don't have a lot of biomass or soil carbon that you can monetize and therefore, you know, shuffle funding into restoration of nature and and also increase the ROI of um, products that the land is is helping to produce. So, but um, internationally, there is there is a lot of solutions and products being proposed from a nature credit, biodiversity credit perspective. And I would say that the many of them or most of them don't actually um, sell outcomes. They're more focused on theoretical uplift in nature where there's no measurement. And the other accompanying point to that is that if you're going to create a high integrity environmental credit and associated market, again, you need to measure things. And what troubles me a little bit is that there is the TNFD and its recent recommendations under its toolkit has said there's there's over 100 tools that you can potentially use to measure nature risk and the state of nature. Well, you look at those, 99% of them are probably not fit for creating um, some kind of credit because the data is way too coarse. You know, you're looking at land a meter, a kilometer, ten kilometers by ten kilometers, or whatever, and and it might even be five, ten years old already. And that's great for screening nature risk, but it ain't great for creating a credit and an outcome. So I do worry that if you don't take the outcome and measurement orientated approach to this effectively we might be selling credits that don't represent actual change on the ground in fact it might be the complete opposite and that's something we should learn from from carbon markets i think that's a really good point you know it's um we don't want to get 10 15 20 years down the track and look back and look at projects that have been implemented or supposedly implemented and they haven't delivered any of the outcomes or being close to delivering the outcomes that were that were promised and that potentially investors have paid good money in terms of investing in the credits that have been spun off that project. Yeah, I think I think the integrity piece and having that established at the very start of the market from a nature perspective is is vital. Especially, 
you know, when I'd say from an investment industry perspective, the understanding around nature and biodiversity loss and the risks associated with those, we're, we're probably at the beginning of our journey to understand, you know, in detail what that means. With that point in mind, I might actually have a go at summarising what's been a, a great conversation and kind of, I guess, pull out three key themes that I, I, at least I think our listeners um, should walk away with um, from today's discussion. And the first of those three would be, you know, we need to make nature count in all forms of decision making, including financial decision making. We need to establish environmental markets so that private sector capital can flow into these markets. As we've discussed, you know, it's kind of well acknowledged now that the public sector funding alone won't help us get to where we want to go in terms of nature positive and restoring nature and improving outcomes for, for biodiversity. But in establishing those markets, we need high integrity, transparent accounting frameworks to make sure that the markets actually deliver the stated natural capital outcomes that they're seeking to achieve. So on that note, I think I might wrap up and just say thank you so much, Adrian, for giving us your time. I know you're crazy busy at the moment, but we really appreciate you taking some time out to discuss what we think is a, is a really important topic. And to our listeners, if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to tune into other episodes in our Cattle, Carbon and Climate QPod series available on our website at www qic.com. I'm Andrew Saunders and you're listening to QPod. Thanks for tuning in.